0: Support for this IPR podcast comes from Iowa Community Foundations, an initiative of the Iowa Council of Foundations, connecting donors to causes they care about. Details on the Endow Iowa Tax Credit Program at communityfoundations.org.
1: It's a Politics Wednesday edition of River to River from IPR News. I'm Ben Kiefer. Joining us today, political scientist's Karen Kedrowski. She is Professor of Political Science, also head of the Care chapman Cat Center for Women in Politics at Iowa State University in Ames. Karen, welcome back to the program.
2: Hi, Ben. Thank you for having me.
1: And on this very first day of February 2023, we also have joining us Adrian Gathman, Assistant Professor of Political Science at Simpson College in Indianola. Welcome back to you, Adrian.
3: Thank you for having me. Happy to be here.
1: And uh, we have plenty of political wood to chop, so to speak, uh, during the hour. Uh, We'll talk about the political shockwaves stemming from the policing and uh, protesting uh, in Memphis. uh, That uh, funeral uh, uh, taking place uh, now, the vice president uh, there uh, in Memphis, uh, the debt limit showdown. Also toward the end of the hour, we want to get Karen and Adrian's uh, uh, thoughts on the Republican field um, as the next presidential primary season is kicking off. But let's start off with uh, Iowa politics. Um, on the weekend, uh, the Iowa Democratic Party's State Central Committee elected Rita Hart as the next party chair. Former state senator, Uh, she had won two races in a district that Donald Trump carried, uh, raised several million dollars as a 2020 congressional candidate. And remember, she lost to uh, Marionette Miller-Meeks in 2020 by just six votes. Uh, That was in Iowa's uh, old second uh, district. Let's listen to her um, just uh, recently telling KCRG that the Democratic Party needs to work together to win elections in Iowa.
2: We have got to um take a look at um, how we organize, how we communicate, how we raise money. That's what it comes down to is um the willingness um to have those kinds of conversations and then and then find the 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 avenues that are that is going to put the skills and the talents of the people that have been doing this work for a long time and also new blood into the party.
1: Karen Kedrowski, um she has her work cut out for her, Rita Hart, in the last 10 years. Just, you know, in short, Iowa has turned from a purple to a red state. Uh, in November, especially, Iowa Democrats taking a beating up and down the ballot. Uh, what do you see uh, as the work, the, 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 the major work that Rita Hart has to, has to get done here to revive the Democratic Party in the state?
2: Yeah, it's uh, going to be a challenge for sure. I think one thing is that she um, needs to make sure that that um, all the races are challenged. So um, uh, recruiting quality challengers across the state <clears throat> even in the conservative areas, is going to be um, important. I think also figuring out um, an identity for the Iowa Democratic Party that is somewhat separate from the National Democratic Party. Um, you know, folks like Nancy Pelosi, um, you know, are fairly unpopular nationally, but then also some of the most um, famous uh, members of the Democratic Party, um, like Ilhan Omar from Minnesota or other members of the squad, Alexandria ocasio Cortez are, you know, um, really from the progressive wing of the party, which really does not, I think, represent a lot of the kinds of voters that the Democrats need to appeal to in order to be able to win in Iowa. And then, of course, there's the uphill climb to um, maintain Iowa's position as an early contest in the presidential years. Uh, I think she's right that the decisions are not yet final um, and that there's a lot of confounding factors, including Iowa's law about when the um, when the caucuses need to be held. Um, but you know, Iowa, the Iowa Democratic Party just lost so much credibility in 2020 with the fiasco on reporting um, the results of the caucuses, and it's it's going to be just an enormous test to try and rebuild the reputation of the party. Um, To demonstrate that, you know, the Democrats in Iowa are capable of pulling off a major contest under international spotlight and then to figure out some arguments to counter the, you know, Iowa's lack of representativeness, um, its lack of competitiveness on the Democratic side and so Mm -hmm. forth.
1: Yeah. Uh, Adrian, what do you have to add to what Karen just said?
3: So along the same lines, it has to be quality candidates that they are putting forth, but they need to make a real effort in putting them forth in multiple races across the state, even in those conservative areas, as uh, Karen was mentioning, to create a brand for the party that is probably one that could be successful here in Iowa would have to be a more moderate brand. Um, especially with some of what the state legislature is doing right now in terms of the very conservative nature of some of these policies. So if the Iowa Democratic Party could build its brand as a more moderate brand and rebuild the reputation that has been lost, they may see some success moving forward. Mm -hmm. I think the element of the first in the nation status is is a very quick turnaround because the DNC, from what I know, will be voting on that proposal this weekend. And it's very likely that it will pass and that Iowa will have to shift. But as Karen pointed out, we have a state law that says we can't. Um, There are also states that have similar policies that are going to have to shift potentially those laws as well based on the vote from the DNC. So it sets up a, a very unsure caucus and primary season for 2024.
1: I want to go back. Well,
3: on the
2: Democratic side, I think it's always on worth reminding Democratic. people yes. that the Republicans intend yes. to have their caucus yes. first, and that they have not backed away from Iowa's the first contest.
1: Yeah. Okay. Uh, yes. Back to something you said to elaborate on, please, Karen, uh, because it's been some years since uh, Iowa Democrats have won a, um, a major statewide office, and they lost uh, several uh, down-ticket uh, uh, races here in the last November elections. Why is it important to put energy and resources and money into districts like Iowa's fourth, uh, even when it's, it's clear that congressional race is not going to go the Democrats' way?
2: Um, I think it's important to show that the Democrats are not writing off any part of the state. Now, it's That, of course, poses a even greater challenge in some respects for um, Rita Hart and the other Democratic Party leaders is that they have to recruit a quality candidate who's willing to enter a race and put in all the work in order to, you know, appear competitive and to try and raise money as much as possible and campaign and still likely lose. Um, so then the, the question becomes, you know, if I am your sacrificial lamb, so to speak, what is there in terms of future opportunities for me? Mm. Will you back me as a candidate in a different kind of race? D- you know, will you back me as, you know, a future leader of the state party? Um, you know, can I get a an appointment in a Democratic administration? You know, those are all the kinds of, you know, back office conversations that happen happen as part of this effort to recruit candidates but yeah it's it's a challenge but um if you don't have a candidate running you have zero chance of winning. Mm. Uh, if you have a poor candidate running, you have a poor chance of winning. But if you have a stronger candidate, it might still be an uphill battle, but you're not going to win without a quality candidate, and you're certainly not going to win without a candidate on the on the ballot.
1: If you've just joined us, it's the Politics Wednesday edition of River to River from IPR News. Karen Kandrowski, of Iowa State University, Adrian Gathman of Simpson College, our two political scientists uh, picking over, um, analyzing, I should say, uh, some of the latest political news, both in Iowa and nationally. We'll move to that a little bit later. Join our conversation, one 780 9100 or email us river to river at iowapublicradio.org. Randy joins us from Iowa City. Hey, Randy, you want to get in on the conversation? Welcome.
0: Thank you. Um, My question is why the Democratic Party in Iowa wants to salvage the caucus process. I'm relatively new to the state. I went to the 2020 caucus, but forcing people to show up on a winter night for a two-hour period with incomprehensible rules and poor organization is not a small-D democratic process. It's closed.
1: Mm -hmm. Okay, Randy, thanks for your input. Others would say that's What's charming about the Iowa caucuses? But we we get your point. Uh, Adrian. do you want to tackle Randy's question there?
3: Sure. Well, I think part of it is the tradition of it, right? It has been first in the nation since 1972. And so I think there's there's this traditional aspect of it. There's also an element of democracy that comes into play, small d democracy that comes into play, because here you are having conversations about what that framework should look like, what should be on the party platform, you're hearing directly from candidate representatives, which doesn't necessarily happen in a primary season. And yes, I fully understand that forcing a certain time frame and being at a certain place, especially in the winter, is not um, other way, in other ways small d democratic. There is this element of conversation and deliberation that happens at a caucus that you don't get in other types of elections.
1: Terrific question. Thank you, Randy, in Iowa City. Let's move on to some bills making headway uh, in the Iowa legislature, um, both having to do with gender, but uh, quite different legislations uh, here, uh, bills here. Yesterday, both the Iowa House and Senate advanced legislation that would restrict how schools deal with gender identity issues. Now, the House Education Committee approving legislation that would prohibit school districts from providing accommodations intended to affirm a student's change in gender identity, uh, such as uh, using their preferred name and pronouns without, and this is important, without written parental consent. Um, Multiple parents of transgender children and teachers who have um, uh, transgender students spoke against this policy in a subcommittee meeting yesterday uh, saying that LGBTQ students who do not have supportive families would be at higher risk if this legislation passes. Now, supporters say framing um, not only cuts uh, parents out of important conversation about what's happening in their lives, uh, but th- they say that opponents of the legislation were saying that parents are evil by not allowing them to know about their children's change in gender identity. Parents are evil, a quote taken from some of the, the testimony. Given. Karen Kudrowski, as uh, head of the uh, Carrie Chapman Cat Center for Women in Politics there, gender is a big part of what you study. Uh, what are your views on this political battle?
2: Well, it certainly is. You know, the next permutation of the culture wars, um, and and especially you know, people who come from uh, certain religious traditions uh, see homosexuality as a sin, but they also tend to deny that um, gender dysphoria, as a as a as a condition, exists, where people don't feel comfortable in their own bodies or that they you know wish to express a gender difference their biological sex or a combination of genders. What I fear from this legislation is that um, we know that LGBTQ students are, are victimized by bullying at very high rates, and they also have very high rates of suicide, and that for many children, of course, home is a safe space, and they feel that they can you know, confide in and talk to their parents and the parents are supportive of their children. That's true in many thousands of cases, but it is also true in, in too many cases that their parents might harm them, um, that their parents might reject them and kick them out. You know, that there could be very, uh, negative consequences for a school that informs, um, you know, a child's parents that they you wish to have a different gender expression, and I think that's the fear here. Certainly not that all parents are evil, but that some children, some minority of children, might be placed in um, you know very compromising circumstances in their homes if if teachers have to disclose this information to parents.
1: Yeah, um, Adrian, to you, and we remind ourselves that we have even stronger majorities in both chambers of the Iowa legislature now, Republican majorities. Uh, your comment on, on this legislation and if it's um, headed to be becoming law, perhaps.
3: I think in the same um, kind of idea of what Karen was saying, that one of the concerns I have is how does this overlap with other policies within Iowa um, code dealing with things like bullying and responses to bullying. Because as Karen mentioned, there are higher rates of such for students within the LGBTQ community. And if we are preventing this kind of affirming care in schools, how then do we prevent the bullying that is also in our Iowa code to prevent? I think there is seemingly enough support for this policy, both in the state Senate and in the state House, that it is likely to pass through, at least in some form, though some of these policies have different barriers that are being placed in the proposals in the Senate and those in the House.
1: Mm -hmm. Adrian, do do you know if this is a a strictly partisan um, uh, measure uh, lining up along political parties in terms of support and opponents?
3: Yes, it very clearly is a one uh, Republican Party Platform move, and there is not democratic support for this particular policy.
1: Right, and, and and Adrian, we have to say this fits into a national context. We want to talk about Ron yes. De- Ron DeSantis later in the pro- program in Florida, but uh, similar things going on in other uh, some other Republican led states, right, Adrian?
3: Yes, DeSantis and the Florida legislature passed this kind of uh, legislation through in the past couple of years, and so this is not a brand new in Iowa policy that's not happening in other places. This is very much a part of, as Karen pointed out, a culture war nationwide.
1: Mm-hmm. And we'll talk about Ron DeSantis when we get to talk about the opening of the uh, presidential primary season for 2024. Ron DeSantis polling very well. I think he's not uh, officially declared. Um, uh, Karen, I want to talk about gender balance here, another bill uh in the Iowa legislature advancing to eliminate gender balance requirement for government boards, committees, commissions uh, in our state. Now, when Senator Jason Schultz, a Republican from Schleswig, introduced this bill, he said the law for this gender balance no longer necessary due to women being fully represented on Iowa boards and commissions. He also said that eliminating the requirement will... Uh, will help panels that can't achieve uh, gender balance. Uh, Senator Pam Yoakum, Democrat, opposed the bill. Uh, a quote from her, quite frankly, I think we're turning the clock back when we do legislation like this. I can't believe this is a solution to whatever is it is we're trying to, to solve. Uh, Karen, you mentioned before the program that monitoring compliance with Iowa's gender balance law is one of the CAT Center's signature projects. What's your view on what's going on here?
2: Well, um, I I think that there's um, just a lot of misinformation that's getting, uh, you know, uh, moved around. I I think just to give the listeners some background, um, Iowa is the only state in the nation that has a gender balance requirement for its public boards and commissions um, at the state level and at the local level. Um, No other state has any sort of requirement for local boards and commissions and only 11 other states have a recommendation uh, for gender or gender and racial balance on the state-level boards and commissions. And there have been a number of studies um, comparatively between states that find out that actually Iowa's gender balance law works. Um, comparatively to other states, Iowa has more women represented on more boards at the state level than states that have a mere recommendation or states that don't have anything on the books at all, no recommendation or requirement. So this is actually proof that Iowa's law is working. The CAT Center's work has found, we've been monitoring the local and municipal requirements since it went into effect in 2012. And we have found that the percentage of boards and commissions that at the local level that our gender balanced has increased by 12%. But that means that it went up from, you know, 50-ish percent to about 62 to 65 percent so that still falls short of full gender balance on all boards and commissions so yes the law is working but you know what we see is incremental change um, and you know the the concern is is that there's just you know it's just really hard to find people to serve on boards and commissions um, and I'm I'm interested in investigating that further because it might be hard to recruit people for boards and commissions because the recruitment is not done very well mm. because the overworked staff people have this to do in addition to their the rest of their responsibilities um, and because they meet at inconvenient times so it may not have anything to do with being able to find people who um, are of you know a particular gender in order to fill up those slots on boards and commissions uh, so you know, we at the Cat Center are are concerned about this law. Though we can, obviously cannot lobby publicly. Um, And we intend to continue to monitor uh, the percentage of women on boards and commissions. But I think the evidence shows that if this law is passed, that we will see a retrenchment. And the percentage of women on boards and the percentage of boards that are gender-balanced will decline. Mm
1: -hmm. Some background here, uh, Karen, perhaps, because according to my reading on this, this law has been in effect for state boards and commissions, gender balance law, since 1986, signed into law by then Republican Governor Terry Branstad, and now it's being called part of a liberal agenda.
2: Yes. <laughs> So the original law was in fact really pushed and sponsored by a Democrat from Story County, um, Johnny Hammond, but it was really part of a national push to enact similar kinds of legislation by the um, National Women's Political Caucus and the AAUW. So there were national leaders going around to the states trying to get states to enact this kind of legislation. So you see a real flurry of this legislation in the late 80s and in the early 90s because, you know, most boards and commissions at the state level had no women on them at all, in spite of women's significant gains in other other ways. The law was expanded in 2012 uh, when the Democrats held the House um, and the Senate in the General Assembly, Assembly and the governorship. And the proposal came out of the Commission on the Status of Women to expand the law. And again, it was sort of in response to, um, you know, building on the success of the 1987 law, and simply applying it to all boards and commissions. Uh, so it does place Iowa apart. Um, and I think, you know, for people who advocate for women's representation in government here in Iowa, that it's a real point of pride. Another thing that we know is that service on local boards and commissions is a common uh, pathway to elective office for women. So um, there there have been a couple of studies nationally and some in Iowa that have shown that something like 30 to 40 percent of women who are elected to the state legislature um, started off with service on a board or commission. Mm. But I think it's also important to remember that these local boards and commissions make important decisions that affect people in their communities every day, right? right? Well, you yeah, know, we'll... zoning boards, for example, you know, we, we, we have, sure we have to take. Toxic waste dumps next to housing developments.
1: Right. Karen, uh, we have to take a break. We'll be back with Karen Kodrowski of Iowa State University, the head of the CAT Center there. Adrian Gathman of Simpson College. Join us 1 866 780 9100. At this very moment, Tyree Nichols is being laid to rest. We'll talk about all of that protest in Memphis when we return.
0: Support for this IPR podcast comes from Iowa Community Foundations, an initiative of the Iowa Council of Foundations, connecting donors to causes they care about. Details on the Endow Iowa Tax Credit Program at communityfoundations.org.
2: Hi, it's Terry Gross, the host of Fresh Air. We bring you in-depth, long-form interviews with actors, directors, musicians, authors, journalists, and more.
1: Glad you're on board for this Politics Wednesday edition of River to River from IPR News. I'm Ben Kiefer with Adrian Gathman of Simpson College in Indiana. She's on the faculty of the Political Science Department there. Karen Kudrowski with us as well of Iowa State University, political science professor. She also heads the Carrie Chapman Catt Center for Women and Politics at ISU. Join our conversation, 1-866-780-9100. Email us, river to river at iowapublicradio.org. Checking the news now, I see this uh, funeral taking place in Memphis, delayed by weather, having quite a a wintry weather there with freezing rain there currently in Memphis, Uh, that funeral being delayed. uh, The funeral of Tyree Nichols, a 29-year-old black man, died last month after being beaten by Memphis police, and we've been all aghast at the uh, the video. Um, those of us who've watched it and heard the description, certainly uh, three days after he was pummeled, uh, he was kicked, uh, pepper sprayed, by a host of uh, Memphis police officers. Uh, his, his death uh, there attending the uh, funeral today, the Vice President uh, Harris, also the Reverend Al Sharpton delivering the eulogy. Um, This has revived calls, Adrian, uh, for Congress to once again consider police reform. Uh, With this era now of new divided government, how likely do you think that is to happen?
3: Unfortunately, I think probably very unlikely. Um, I, I don't, I think both sides have their idea of what reform could look like and are not going to be able to come to the table and come to a consensus as to what that should look like and how it should operate. There's also complicating layers for federal policy when it comes to police reform, um, because those types of powers are typically left up to the states because of the system as we have created it. And so there's also limited things that the federal government could do in response. That's not to say they can't do things. It just takes specific... Um, for example, grants tying reform to money that these uh, police departments or the states themselves could take. And so it it becomes a funding battle potentially, which we see how that works out in th- at the federal level, as well as, like I said, this uh, divided government, as you mentioned, makes it more difficult for them to come to the same page because they each have their own perspectives of what it means to have police reform, and they don't seem to line up.
1: Yeah, and and, and different narratives as as to what the problem (laughs) is cannot lead to, it would be harder to find common ground when you have just different narratives. Now, plans are underway for the Congressional Black Caucus chair to meet with President Biden about police reform. Karen, your thoughts on this issue that's been plaguing our country now for years?
2: Yeah, I agree with everything that Adrian said, and, of course, complicating all of this is that policing is really a local government issue. Uh, so it's, you know, local ordinances and to some degree state uh, laws that really are the most important ones in terms of determining what police practices are, what their hiring and training practices are, the degree of investment, and so forth. So the federal government plays a very minimal role. So while they can symbolically, I think... Take a stand or pass some laws that might be tied to, you know, federal funding and things like that. That's still going to be less important in the long run than what happens at the local and state levels.
1: Mm -hmm. Let's uh, talk briefly about the debt showdown, which who knows how many weeks that will last. Uh, The U.S. technically already exceeding its $31.4 trillion debt limit. Uh, The Treasury Department warning that its ability to delay a default Uh, by using so-called extraordinary measures, could be exhausted by early June. Now, President Biden, uh, House Speaker McCarthy, set to meet later today at uh, 2.15 Iowa time. Uh, This is a one-on-one discussion of the debt ceiling, spending cuts demanded by Republicans as this deadline looms over Washington And let's listen to a little bit uh, of audio from Speaker McCarthy on the weekend telling CBS's Face the Nation that during his upcoming meeting with the president today, he'll focus on reducing spending. No, I mean, look, you're going to tell me inside defense there's no waste others? Um, I mean, they spend a lot of. I think everything, when you look at discretionary, is sitting there. It's like every single household, it's like every single state. We shouldn't just print more money. We should balance our budget. So Mm -hmm. I want to look at every single department. Where can we become more efficient, more effective, and more accountable? So more efficiencies
2: in Social Security and Medicare as well?
1: The one thing I want to say, we take Social Security and America off the table. Okay, there's the crux of it, isn't it, Karen? Because according to reports, Republicans insisting they want structural fiscal changes in exchange for voting to raise the borrowing cap. So far, they... Decline details. Decline to offer a plan. Of course, the president will come out with his budget soon. Uh, so, right, the, the the president pushing them on what do you want to cut? Because that's that's politically a problem for, for Republicans.
2: Uh, yes, it is. Um, and of course, they've already mentioned, I mean, some Republicans are talking about uh, turning Social Security and Medicare into discretionary programs. There's some discussion about raising the retirement age or um, limiting spending. Um, and of course, I think the important thing here is that if you want to rein in government spending, this is not the way to do it, right? Because the debt ceiling allows the government to borrow money. It's it's not printing money. It's borrowing money to be able to pay for programs that are already authorized. Now, if you want to go after a wasteful spending or cut programs that you think are inappropriate, then do so through the authorization and the budget and appropriations process. Right. right. But, you know, you don't do it after that's all finished and people are depending on the programs being funded.
1: Right, right, and 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 I guess the, this analogy always comes. This is not like. Uh, deciding to put something else on your credit card, this is something that's already on the credit card that needs to be paid, right? So we should think of it that way. Some
2: of these extraordinary measures are things like delaying interest payments. Well, if our, you know, credit rating takes a hit, that means that we're actually going to be paying more in interest rather than less. And so that's uh, going to end up taking away funding from um, social programs and defense.
1: The first half of the program, we talked about some of the agenda here by the GOP-controlled legislature here in Iowa. I want to sort of make a make a loop around uh, by going from Iowa to Florida. Uh, Florida Governor Randis Ron DeSantis polling very well when GOP voters asked about his possible 2024 uh, candidacy. Uh, now his moves in Florida played out um, in the area of education, in classrooms, on university campuses. Uh, And this will sound very familiar to those following the Iowa legislature. Ron DeSantis banning instruction about gender identity, sexual orientation, in kindergarten through third grade, limiting what schools and employers can uh, teach about racism, other aspects of history, rejecting math books uh, uh, for what the state called indoctrination, um, also most recently banning uh, the College Board's advanced placement courses in African-American studies for high school students. Now, yesterday, Governor DeSantis announcing a, a proposed overhaul of the state's higher education system, eliminating what he called Ideological conformity. Now, if enacted, courses in Western civilization would be mandated, Um, diversity and equity programs eliminated, and the projections, uh, protections rather, of tenure reduced. Let's hear a little bit of Governor DeSantis on Tuesday, yesterday, announcing these sweeper higher education uh, uh, proposals, uh, a package uh, to be taken up by the GOP controlled state house in Florida.
0: We are also going to eliminate all DEI and CRT bureaucracies in the state of Florida. No funding, and that will wither on the vine. And I think that that's very important because it really serves as an ideological filter, a political filter. You've seen different things. I mean, New College has really embraced that, and that's part of the reason I think it hasn't been successful and the enrollments down so much, uh, because I think people want to see uh, true academics, and they want to get rid of some of the uh, political window dressing that seems to accompany all this. We're also going to propose, so yes, we have the five-year review of all the tenured faculty, which is, which is good, And you can have and the board of trustees has to determine whether they stay or go. But you may need to do review more aggressively than just five. So we're going to give the boards of trustees and the presidents of the universities the power to call a post tenure review at any time. And so maybe you're in year three, but there's a need to do it. So we want to do that. And I've talked with folks around uh, the country who've been involved in higher ed reform and the most significant deadweight cost at universities is typically unproductive tenure faculty. And so why would we want to saddle you as taxpayers with that cost if we don't have to do that?
1: Okay, remarkable. The conversations happening in Florida, also happening here in Iowa, that was Florida governor Round DeSantis and recognizing that <laughs> I am speaking with two uh, faculty members uh, in our higher education system in here in Iowa. Just want to mention that, of course, it's clear but but your, your thoughts uh, starting with you adrian
3: well i think it's interesting that he frames this as being about academic freedom um because i think that's what we assume the tenure process is for is to provide that level of protection and academic freedom in our work once we are um through that tenure process and as he pointed out yeah five-year reviews are common um I think the threat of having a review at any point would would place a burden on a person's academic freedom in those situations. And I think if this kind of policy goes through, Florida universities might struggle to retain faculty members.
1: Yeah. Yeah. Karen, your thoughts. You are, of course, at one of Iowa's three public universities, Iowa State University. And you've heard discussion in this state about uh, tenure uh, laws being changed.
2: Yes, we, we have. Um, and, and I think one of the things that, that you know, this sounds like a great talking point on DeSantis's part, like you can have a review at any time. Well, I, I promise you we are reviewed annually even as tenured faculty. And we don't have to wait until a, a negative post-tenure review for people to start removal processes if somebody is really underperforming or if they have c- created you know, it committed some sort of criminal or, um, act or otherwise placed the institution at risk. So, and, and this ignores the administrative burden. Um, you know, reviews in higher ed typically are much more onerous than a review that you might find in the private sector. You know, it requires, you know, go, combing through many, many documents, student course evaluations, personal reflections, publications, you know, reading entire books that people might have produced and so forth. So um, there's, you know, it's it's not a small thing that he is suggesting. But also, certainly, this would be um, dampening um, in terms of academic freedom. If, um, say, world history courses are replaced with Western civilization, um, it would be, I think, very damaging to our efforts to recruit and retain um, students of underrepresented groups if we can't talk about diversity, equity, and inclusion. And, um, you know, so if, if a lot of those policies are um, brought in, um, it could be damaging to higher ed here in Iowa as well as in Florida. And once again, it's another version of the culture wars, right? Um, and higher education has become a convenient uh, a convenient point of criticism, um, and often without a great deal of nuance about what the life of academics is really like.
1: And uh, that does go, go ahead, Adrian. Sorry, sorry.
2: I'd be interested to know what
3: he thinks an underperforming academic is, mm mm-hmm. but.
1: Okay, if he's listening, he can write us uh, river-to-river at (laughs) iowapublicradio.org. That that dovetails nicely into our our final uh, section of of comment, uh, discussion here. Uh, The 2024 presidential primary season is kicking off. Um, We had Donald Trump visiting New Hampshire, South Carolina on the weekend. Uh, His trip marking the first declared candidate, making his first campaign swing through early primary states. Now, other Republicans making moves towards challenging uh, Trump, um, none officially jumping in, and according to my information, but we did hear in the news, Nikki Haley, the former U.N. ambassador under Trump, governor of South Carolina, formerly planning to announce she will run for president, uh, positioning herself to be the first declared Republican challenger to Donald Trump. Um, uh, uh, let's get your thoughts in closing on uh, the names that have been thrown out here not only Donald Trump Nikki Haley uh, former Secretary of State uh, Mike Pompeo uh, Ron DeSantis Mike Pence uh, Adrian how are you sizing up the race we have a way to go admittedly but the GOP nomination will be uh, arriving quicker than we we know and Iowa will be part of that nomination process what are your where are your thoughts
3: I think a lot of the conversation within within uh, Republican Party nominations has been, where are the pathways and what do those look like? And also, at what point do you enter the race? Um, So some of the conversation that I've been reading about in Nikki Haley's potential campaign has, and others, has been, at what point do we enter? Because if you're first, you're also probably the first target for for former President Trump, right? Mm -hmm. And do you want to be that first and only target? Or do you want to wait it out until others enter the field? And so, as of right now, DeSantis has not entered the race, but Trump has been taking aim at him. Most recently, I think calling him disloyal, for example, um, amongst many other names, he's called that. He's called uh, Governor DeSantis. But Nikki, with Nikki Haley potentially entering the race as early as next week or this weekend, even um, does Trump start taking aim at her? And does that hurt her potential chances down the road? We're not looking at a debate for the Democratic Party, and, or sorry, the Republican Party, until late July or August. Yeah. So there's a long way to go before we get into our what we deem kind of more of a formal campaign season.
1: Yeah. Let's flashback four years ago before, Karen, you, you comment here. I just wanted to throw this in. Four years ago, according to my reading, at least a dozen Democratic candidates this is on the Democratic side, right? Because we had a, then a Republican president as an incumbent. Yes, uh, an uh, extremely
2: uh, unpopular. <laughs> so we had a, <laughs> we incumbent.
1: had something like a dozen Democratic presidential hopefuls four years ago, eager to make their case against Donald Trump, the sitting president. They had either visited Iowa or announced plans to visit um, ahead of the 2020 election. But so far in this cycle, only former. Arkansas Governor Asa Hutchinson has he visited last, this year. Uh, U.S. Senator Tim Scott, South Carolina, uh, making plans evidently to stop by in the next few weeks. Uh, Karen, your comment on uh, on where and, you see this? And not, Vice
2: President Pence has come yes, through. Yes, he has. Yeah, you're right. I, I think Adrian has really um, you know articulated it beautifully. Um, is that the moment that um, a Republican announces they become a target for President Trump? And so the question is, is who's going to go first? Um, Do they all try and jump off the cliff together so that, you know... (laughs) His vitriol, <laughs> you know, is spread out among several people, uh, but they're going to have to get started because you know it's it's a long campaign season, but they have a lot of work to do, especially in terms of raising money and awareness. And this gives me an opportunity to respond to Randy's question from the beginning of the show. Mm-hmm. One reason why Iowa is tied to a caucus is that um, New Hampshire has a law that says it must be the first primary. So if Iowa adopt if Iowa wishes to remain first in line it has to have a caucus
1: I see Okay. So, so let's talk about the GOP side, though. How does Iowa fit into the GOP nominating process, from what you can tell Karen? W- will it change? So far, the GOP is is, is
2: no, carrying no, through this I, tradition. I expect that we will be enjoying the company of any number of uh, Republican aspirants for the White House, just as we have done, you know, done so in the past. And I think that's going to be, you know, uh, um, elevated, in, in fact, because I don't think that Biden is going to have have any um, opposition if he chooses to run. Yeah. So the whole inside politics on the Democratic side about, you know, being punished by the party if you campaign in the wrong states or, you know, would Iowa lose delegates will be a moot point because the attention is going to be fo- and the race is going to be on the Republican side. Yeah.
1: And, and the Republicans still keeping to their calendar uh, this cycle. Mm-hmm. But, Adrian, uh, without the Democrats side by side in that duo one of the things that Iowa Democrats and Republicans have agreed on over the years is keeping the caucuses, but without the the Democrats side by side, lockstep in that calendar. Um, uh, Will Iowa shape and winnow the field uh, in the Republican side as in past years?
3: I think it still will, right? The Iowa caucuses have not been the best at choosing who the nominee is going to be. That's, That's really not been the role we played, even if That's kind of how it gets framed. We've more been in the role of saying who's not going to potentially be the final nominee for each party. And I think that's still what we will see play out with this Republican caucus as it comes through town next year. Mm -hmm. The question will become in the future, will they want to shift their calendar similarly or will they want to maintain The calendar as it is
1: Mm -hmm. Uh, a quick word we only have a a minute or two here but uh, next week at this time we'll be dissecting analyzing with other analysts the president's uh, State of the Union address before a now divided Congress Uh, The parents of Tyree Nichols will be present at that State of the Union address uh, before uh, both um, uh, the House members and the Senate members. Uh, Karen, your expectations for this address um, and for this uh, divided Congress, as it's uh, still very early on in this new Congress.
2: Yeah. Uh, Well, first of all, the president will declare that the State of the Union is strong because that happens every time. Uh, but, and often this is an opportunity to, for the president to lay out a legislative agenda. But the president's ability to be able to do that in the face of, you know, of Congress controlled by the opposition is going to be very, um, you know, circumscribed. So I, I think what he is going to be doing is, is talking about making this sort of an early campaign speech. He's going to be talking about the um, achievements of his administration and then talking about what public support is. And then calling for a few major reforms, such as for policing or gun control, and some other things that will really speak to the Democratic base, knowing full well that he's not likely to see them passed.
1: The final thirty seconds for you, Adrian Gathman.
2: I would assume we're
3: also going to hear calls for bipartisanship, as we typically do when there is a divided government, um, and. Potentially specifically linking to the debt ceiling and saying we need to have bipartisan reform in these particular areas. I'll be interested to see if we have any addressing of the confidential materials being found. Um, mm. in various homes Yes, of that, that in the news We didn't officials. get a chance
1: to talk about that today Our time has run out We didn't get to everything on our agenda but we, we got to a good chunk of it Adrian Gathman of Simpson College and Karen Kadrowski of Iowa State University Thank you for your political analysis today We appreciate it
2: My pleasure Thank you, Ben
1: River to River Today Thanks. produced by Caitlin Troutman our executive producer Catherine Perkins I'm Ben Kiefer Thanks for joining us